A reading from the book of Genesis, beginning in the 15th chapter. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Welcome to All Souls Anglican Church. Uh, If you're visiting with us for the first time this evening, we're doing uh, an older form of the liturgy for Lent as a way of sort of getting us a little uncomfortable, understanding the distance that exists between us and God. And with that, there is no other point in the service for me to give you a few announcements. So I have a few of those for you before uh, I continue with my homily. Uh, The first is that we now have our Holy Week schedule Posted. You can see that in the uh, front page of your order of worship. So we're going to be doing a tenebrae service on Holy Wednesday, the week of Holy Week. So uh, to orient you, April 14th is Palm Sunday. So the Wednesday following that, we will have a tenebrae service at our downtown chapel at 6 p.m. We will have a Maundy Thursday service with foot washing and Eucharist at our downtown chapel at 6 p.m. We will have a Good Friday service at our downtown chapel at 6 p.m. We will have a Holy Saturday service at our downtown chapel at 4 p.m. And then Sunday morning, we will have a sunrise vigil here at St. Michael's beginning at 5.30. So, for those of you that are used to a less rigorous Holy Week, which is pretty much all of us, uh, I would encourage you to make it to as many of these services as possible. This is This is the week of the Christian year when we get to experience freshly and anew the work that Christ has accomplished for us in going to the cross and then rising again. And Easter morning is an incredible moment when we get to say the words that have been struck from our liturgy for all of Lent, and we get to call out this Easter acclamation. 
But that Easter acclamation isn't going to make a ton of sense if you haven't journeyed with us through Holy Week and really sat with the silence and the somberness and the darkness of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we will be having a 24-hour watch Thursday following our service until our service begins on Friday. So we'll have sign-up sheets. You'll get to come and pray silently. You can sign up for a half hour or an hour throughout the entire night to sit and keep watch with Christ as his disciples tried to and failed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So uh, I'll be announcing this again. My encouragements will probably only get stronger in their tenor. Uh, if you're going to take time off from work, uh, this is a good time to take time off from work if you need to, if you're able to. I know that not all of you are able to. Um, but, you know, if you can get up early to catch a plane for vacation, you can get up early for Easter Vigil. Uh, it's going to be a grueling week. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's going to be hard. But I think it will be very, very rewarding. So I encourage you to please plan on joining us for that. There are other announcements there in your order of worship that you can uh, look at if my sermon gets a little too boring. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. There's this Italian film called Life is Beautiful, and if you need a film to impress your friends, you know, so you can say things like this Italian film, uh, this is a great one. It's really, really stunning. And the main character is a man named Guido. He's a Jewish-Italian bookshop owner, and he falls in love. And he and his wife, Dora, have a son named Joshua. And Joshua grows up in the shadow of World War II. And eventually, his father and he are sent to a concentration camp. And his mother is separated from them, sent to a different camp, so they think. But it's in the camp that Guido, the father's vivid imagination, works to shield his son from the horror of their present situation. And so he sets about convincing his son that they are playing a complicated game. And the first person to reach a thousand points will get a tank. And everything within the concentration camp is explained to Joshua in terms of the game. The Nazi guards are mean and angry because they're playing the game too and they want to win and their job is to be mean and angry. Chores are necessary to earn points. Complaining only costs you points, so it's important to stay quiet and chipper. Joshua exists in a world of competing stories. There's what looks like objective reality that is filled with darkness, direness, and death, and then there's the story that he's required to take on faith. It's a story of life and love in the midst of sacrifice. Eventually, Joshua's trust in his father leads to his salvation. The Americans are on their way, and Guido instructs Joshua to hide until everyone is gone. Before their rescuers can arrive, though, Guido has caught word that Dora is actually in their same camp, and so he goes looking for her, and he's caught by a guard. And so they're going to lead him out to execute him before they take off and flee the oncoming Americans. And as he is led past by the guards, by the place where his son Joshua is hiding, the place that he told him to hide, he knows that his son is watching him, and that if he hangs his head like a man about to go to death, Joshua will realize this is not a game. 
and he will come out of hiding, and he too will be killed. And so his father proceeds to walk like a clown to his death. And Joshua remains hidden, continues to trust his father that this is a game. And the Americans come, and he gets to ride on a tank. Our Old Testament lesson this evening reveals that Abram, too, existed in a world of competing stories. There's one that looks like objective reality, and it's bleak and barren. It's a dried-up, dying desert. Abram and Sarah have left everything they ever knew. They left home, family. They struck out for nowhere, all because Abram was hearing voices telling him to get out of Ur, telling him another story, that despite the fact that Sarah's womb was as dry as the desert they'd been tramping through, they would have a son, an heir, offspring. And if you were to go back and look at when God calls Abram out of Ur, it's important to note that Abram doesn't say a word in response to the voice of God. He just goes. He obeys. He believes. But as time drags on, having children goes from an unlikely event to an impossible one, and home is a million miles away, and death has moved right next door. And the questions before us are two sides of the same coin. Can Abraham trust the story that God is telling him? And can the God of this story be trusted? I'd like to give you a little little overall shape of this story before we dive into the details here. Our narrator has actually pushed together two episodes that echo each other and serve to fill each other out. The first episode takes place at night. God comes to Abram, makes a promise to him with an I am statement. Abram responds with complaint and questioning. God reassures him with symbols. In in this case, it's the stars of the sky symbolizing the offspring that will come through Abram. He will be given the son of promise. And Abraham responds by trusting God. The second episode takes place in the evening at sunset. God makes a promise to Abram with an I am statement. And Abram responds with questioning. God again reassures him with symbolic acts, cutting a covenant with him to assure him that he will be given the land of promise. And Abram responds by trusting God. So what's going on in this covenant? This covenant scene is incredibly mysterious because it's so foreign to us, but also partly because the character of Yahweh is presented as personal and yet enigmatic. He appears as fire and smoke and dreadful darkness, which is exactly as he will appear at Sinai generations from now when God makes a covenant with Abram's descendants through Moses. And in that scene, hundreds of years later, his holy mountain is pictured in fire and smoke and dreadful darkness. And as he follows and leads his people through the desert, he does so as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. These revelations are ultimately mysterious, but they point to something very key about the nature of God. He is self-revelatory, illuminating things that orbit around his essence with fire, and he is also confounding. The deeper you are pulled into him, the smokier and the darker things get. The more his fire illuminates, the more his smoke and darkness obscure and confound. God is no one's parlor trick. He is entirely other. Now, in Abram's culture, when two parties wanted to make a covenant, 
a solemn binding pact, here's how it would typically go. Together they would slaughter the appropriate animals, a sign that they were willing to make a promise at cost to themselves. They would set the pieces apart from each other, and oftentimes the blood would pool in between, and then both parties would walk through the pieces of flesh. I realize that this is rather gruesome to our modern sensibilities, but the symbolism of what was happening was quite serious. These were not just gruesome, barbaric people. They understood very seriously each party of the covenant was essentially saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this be my fate, this blood that I'm tramping through. Essentially, the other party could legally demand the cutting in half of the party who failed to uphold their end of the covenant. In this case, the particulars of the covenant surround the inheritance of land. God is covenanting to Abraham that this land that has been promised to him will indeed be handed down. And the issue that Abraham is upset about, the fact that land is meaningless without heirs to inherit it, will be dealt with. God will give him a child from his own loins, not an adopted heir. And the offspring of Abraham will come to inherit this land. But did you notice what's happening in this particular section of our text? where this covenant-making scene is happening. Abram is in the deepest of slumbers. It's actually the same phrase that is used to describe how God put Adam to sleep when making Eve. Here's Abram, one of two primary players in this covenant, and he's basically just asleep and watching it happen. As he drifts into the darkness of God, all we see is the fire and smoke of God's presence pass through between the pieces, and God metaphorically gets the blood of the covenant on his feet while Abraham stays clear. Now, to say more about this covenant would be to enter into speculation. But what we can say is this. In making himself the party to be held accountable, God has made Abraham's faith... I timed that almost perfectly, you guys. I mean, everybody good? Okay. In making himself the party to be held accountable, God has made Abraham's faith the only guarantee needed. And what is unfolding before us here is the continuing drama of all scripture and all human history, that God is not content to allow his wayward creation to just continue on their pathway to destruction. He is barreling after them with full force. He will not stop until death itself has been dismantled. This covenant is a foreshadowing of the day when God will eventually take on flesh in Jesus, who then takes on the death of the world, essentially saying, I will hold up both ends of this covenant, mine and yours. The only thing required of humanity in this covenant is faith. It's trust, trust that God will make provision for our failure, our imprisonment to death. The Apostle Paul spent a great deal of time in more than one epistle to the early church fleshing out what it means that Abraham was justified by faith, that he was considered righteous, made right with God simply by believing. This is an incredible doctrine that is central to the Christian religion, but I think what often happens for those of us that have spent any amount of time in the church is we just say, okay, yeah, we get it. God justifies us. He makes us right with him through faith so that we just need to have the perfect faith so that we can make sure we're in. 
and we come up with this list of things to believe, and as long as we're checking those things off, we're set. The problem is we start to get kind of neurotic about it. And if anyone around us starts to question or complain, we plug our ears because we have to have the exact right things in place. As I said at the beginning, Abraham and Sarah have been promised a child, but they are still living in a world marked by barrenness. And up until now, when God tells Abraham something, Abraham simply responds with faith without saying anything in response. But now you can almost hear the tension in his voice as God comes to him again and says, don't be afraid, I'll make your reward great. And Abraham says, what could you possibly give me? I'm still childless, and when I die, I'm going to have to sign over my estate to one of my servants. Pause. God just remains silent. He knows that there's more that Abram needs to get out. So he just keeps listening and Abram keeps going. You haven't given me any children. He repeats himself like most angry people. So I'm going to have to give my estate to a servant when I die. But when God tells Abram the alternate story again, the one that doesn't seem to square with reality, we're told that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It changed his standing with God. And in the second section of the story, Abram again responds to God with complaint and question, and God responds by cutting that covenant with him. So what exactly is going on in this story? It's actually been suggested down through the ages that Abraham's complaints are so palpable, so strong, that the narrator went back and inserted that little part about Abraham believing God and being made righteous just so we don't get the wrong idea about one of the patriarchs. It certainly seems like whenever Abraham opens his mouth, he reveals the fact that he doesn't really believe. Or does he? If faith is just a quiet pietism, something that can hide away from the parched desert terrain of life, then perhaps Abraham really isn't believing. Or it could be that our conceptions of faith simply aren't robust enough. I think if we take this story at face value, what we see is that, as Walter Brueggemann said, complaint and faith are not antithetical. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. Faith is not a dance through a flowery metal. Who, who would need faith for that? Faith is shakily putting one foot in front of the other, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Faith is noisy. Faith involves fighting, wrestling, and sometimes, yes, anger and impatience. A lot of us have this crazy notion left over from our British heritage of keeping a stiff upper lip, keeping calm and carrying on, that emotional expression is somehow wrong, somehow not faith. But what Abraham shows us is that it is in this emotive outburst that faith finds its footing. Faith shouts back because it is counting on the promises of God. Silence in the face of delayed promises is not virtue. It is a sign of despair, a sign that we don't truly believe that God can prove us wrong, and so we simply stop talking. But faith is also incredibly earthy. Notice that all of the promises that Abraham is taking hold of are incredibly physical. A physical child, a physical plot of land, 
Apparently, if you want to enter into relationship with God through faith, you've got to be willing to get dirty because the God who makes covenants, the true God, deals in dust. All along, his mission has been to have a place in which he will dwell with his people. And in order to get what he wants, he wraps himself in dust and descends into death to overcome it. And now we too are called to faith. We are called like Abraham and Sarah to respond not to anything that we can see in the world, but to a word which promises to overcome the barrenness of that world. Some of you are literally dealing with the pain and emptiness of barrenness. Others of you are dealing with the loss of a child or a sibling or a parent or a spouse friends who have turned their back to you or to Jesus? Some of you have been wrestling through desert patches in your life for a long time. You've been a person of faith for years, maybe, and suddenly, darkness is just all around you. Some of you have moved through faith, through life on the outskirts of faith, You've never really been able to trust that Jesus is God, that Jesus has brought resurrection into a dying world. And as a starting point, I want to say to you, don't be afraid to make noise. Find your voice, start to shout back when you have to, and don't even be afraid if the concrete of your faith starts to crumble, because faith is a deep, deep trust that even when trust itself starts to crack open, God will remain faithful and that his promise of new life in the future will eventually collide with the death and barrenness of the present. We must never forget that we are standing as people caught in between times, caught between a promise and its fulfillment, and at times it can feel as if we're being pulled apart This, too, is a part of faith. God's excursus on what awaits Abraham's descendants at the end of this chapter is mirrored throughout Scripture. That faith, being put back into right relationship with God, always brings suffering. It brings suffering because you find yourself grasping onto God's promises with one hand and the desert of this world with the other, and we find ourselves taking the shape of our Savior and we become cruciform once again. So even now, even if you have been wandering for a long time, if you find faith welling up within you and you have been baptized into the church of Christ, you are going to have an opportunity in a moment to taste just how deeply he keeps his covenants, that he will bring life where there was death. He will bring joy to the sorrowful. He will bring resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.